Welcome to The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. Today, you are going to learn how to outsmart emotional eating and live a life of happiness and joy without giving up the foods you love. Now, here is Dr. Nina. Hi, welcome to The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. I'm your host, Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland, psychoanalyst, and I'm here to help you liberate yourself from emotional eating, take back control, and feel good in your body, all without dieting, spending hours in the gym, or counting a single macro. Today, we're going to talk about binge eating and perfectionism and how to break the link with my special guest, Kirsten Johansson. So question for you before I tell you about Kirsten. Have you ever found yourself in an exhausting pursuit of perfection only to turn to food for comfort when things don't go as planned? And isn't it ironic, the drive for flawlessness, that drive to be perfect, it always leads to the opposite, total loss of control and often binge eating. So if we don't address perfectionism, it leads to stress, anxiety, and a feeling of never feeling good enough no matter what you achieve. And that's why we're talking about it today. So Kirsten is a resilient survivor, coach, mentor, guide, teacher, and advocate with over 30 years experience in human-centered health, wellness, and transformation. She shows you how to silence your inner critic and let go of perfectionism making room for creativity, love, and freedom to thrive. Welcome, Kirsten. Hello, Dr. Nina. It's so good to see you again. It's so good to see you. And um, uh, I should also add that you have a show on Voice America. So I do. I I host GTO Freedom for Humans on Voice America, and Dr. Nina uh, came on the show. Um, It's been a few months now, I feel like. Um, And we talked about the binge cure. Yeah. And we had such a great conversation that we had to keep it going. So here you are. Here I am. So, Kirsten, tell us your personal story of how you came to do this work in particular. Well, um, I'll just start sort of at the most recent point of that story, because I know we're going to dig into kind of my history with perfectionism and binge eating, et cetera. Um, So the way that I came to do this work is I was working in sexual wellness, sexual health care. I had been doing that um, quite a long time, almost 17 years. And I realized um, through after doing a lot of work on my own self, which is very much connected to this topic, um, I did a whole bunch of work on my perfectionism. And when I did that, I was surprised. Um, a lot of things changed. In fact, not just a lot of things changed, everything changed. And what surprised me was that I didn't belong at my job anymore. I did not think that. I did not expect that at all. That was never part of what I was thinking about when I was doing this work to really start to change the things that were causing suffering in my life. And so I left because for me, um, not belonging, and again, we're going to get to this because it's it's deeply connected to kind of where my suffering comes from, but um, not belonging is painful to me. Like, excruciating. And I couldn't really show up as myself and contribute in the way that I was used to or wanted to because I was sort of a different person and I no longer, I just no longer fit anymore. Um, We use that in, in business sometimes, right? We'll say, well, they're just not a good fit. Well, I became just not a good fit. And so I left 
And I took some time off, which I had not done in like 30 years, basically. And, and thought, well, what do I, what do I really want to do? And I decided I wanted to write. I wanted to tell stories using my voice, which I get to do on my radio show and I get to do today. Um, and I wanted to use my experiences to help other people. I've had a kind of a challenging life as most human beings have. And I do have a way of sort of parlaying it um, to help other people. So that's how I landed here. Well, it, it's it's so interesting. Often when we find ourselves not belonging, I don't know if this is the case for you, but sometimes when we find ourselves not belonging somewhere, it brings us to an original not belonging mm. and can revive old trauma. Um, I don't know if that's the case for you, but good for you for realizing it and getting out of Dodge. Well, hearing you say that, I have not thought about it in that way specifically really but it very much yes it very much was connected to that part inside of us that's really really deep that really really deep kind of ooh the part that when that that button gets pushed ooh boy um in my case all hell broke loose in a way <laughs> it really <laughs> yes yeah, so that's an interesting observation you make that definitely happened well, sometimes what, what, not to sound trite, but it's so perfect here. Like when we have what, what, when things break down, it's often what precedes a breakthrough. So very yeah. much. That was very much the case for me. Okay. So what you didn't talk about in that overview was your own personal experience. And I know you do have a history with eating disorders. I do. And how you integrated that history with the work that you do now. So can you share a little bit about that? Yes. So first of all, I would say I was raised, um, you know, I had a, I had a sort of an idyllic, you know, two parent household, older brother, um, suburban, uh, suburbs of Portland, Oregon, um, you know, just in many ways, very, very idyllic, um, 1970s into the 80s um, childhood and upbringing. My dad was a teacher and a coach. My mom worked in the school system as well. And so we had summers off, you know, my dad worked summers as well, but we kind of had that summers off schedule and we vacationed at a family cabin um, in another part of Oregon and water skied and all of these things, right? So in many ways, I had a really wonderful childhood and I was also raised by a perfectionist. So um, where it really starts is with my dad. Um, and you know, he was a very big character. He had a he was he was a big presence. He was an alpha male. He was the head of household. You know, it was a very traditional um kind of patriarchal setup. And so, you know, he he was uh, you know, my world, you know, when we're little like that, our world is typically made up of our families. And then we go to school and our world starts to expand. But that core, that core learning, teaching, conditioning, for me, you know, happened um, with my family. And there were very high standards. Um, and so, and it really wasn't acceptable not to meet those standards. So when I'm talking about high standards, I'm talking about performance in school um, and getting good grades and demonstrating that you're an intelligent being. Um, that was incredibly important. Manners were important. 
um, behaving a certain way was important. Appearance was important. The way I was dressed, um, the weight that I was, particularly as I, you know, began to grow into um, a young, you know, young girl. All of the messages that I got and all of the standards that were set and the way that I was coached by my coach dad and pushed was toward a, a very high standard. And I'll just end this with, uh, as a teacher, he was an English teacher, and there was a big poster right by the door. And as you um, exited his classroom, it said, perfection is an ideal and is therefore unattainable. And I now know he was speaking to himself. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, yes, dun, dun. yes. Well, you know, my for, for those of you who are listening, you can't see this, but I'm holding a cup that says perfectly imperfect as we all are. But when we get the message that somehow we have to be more perfect, we have to be perfect in order to earn acceptance or love or what have you to fit in and that is a very high bar indeed. And how did you cope with that, with all of the, these messages? Well, um, I, I became a person who tried very, very hard. So the first way was to try really hard, to pay attention to everything, to meet the standards because I didn't want to be punished. And along with the perfectionism, um, there was also rage. And as a perfectionist, um, you know, it's a, it is a, it's a well of suffering. That's really what I want to say about perfectionism. It is an endless well of suffering because you are setting unreachable standards and then trying to reach them. So there's no end. It's inherently self-hating because you're set up to feel like a failure or to potentially characterize yourself as a failure or to never be able to rest. And so, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to analyze him um, posthumously really, but, you know, knowing myself now what, what that perfectionism caused, I could see potentially where like all that angst um, and that rage uh, potentially came from. But it created a bit of a scary environment where you really, <laughs> it was like, try hard, try hard, try hard, and try to avoid getting in the in the way of the anger, uh, maybe when things didn't go the way that um, he wanted them to go. It's a hard way to live to be kind of the, I guess, you know, kind of narcissistic extension of our parents and having to, like, if, if we don't, if we're not perfect, then somehow it reflects on them and that can create a lot of rage. It's pain, you know, it's, it's painful and it's conditional. And, it, and so I'm guessing that it, it created conditionality around you even feeling good about you that you had to hit certain markers to be good enough. Oh, absolutely. And even, even with those markers, I never really felt good. Like even when I would hit them, um, I wouldn't really feel good. Or if I did, it would be very brief. You know, it would just be this little, maybe a little sparkle. And I think, okay, all right, I did that, or I made that, or I accomplished that, or 
that thing went good, or I didn't make a mistake or whatever, whatever you say to yourself, but it's not lasting, right? That's the, that's the whole point of this. Um, that beast is never satisfied and there's never going to be enough for it. Makes me think of a friend of mine who was married since divorce, and you'll understand why in a moment, married to someone who was a director and he got nominated for an Emmy. And you would think that as a director, you're nominated for an Emmy. You go, yes, this is awesome. I've, I, I've, I've, I've arrived, <laughs> got nominated for an Emmy. Oh no, he was actually very depressed because he said, well, it's just a daytime Emmy and it's not the Oscars. So oh. basically the only way this guy was going to feel good about himself is if he was nominated for an Oscar and won it and won every category. The, <laughs> by, the bar was not too high, was it? So, okay. So you're growing up in this environment where you have to do well. And if you don't, there's anger directed there's, at you. There's anger or there's, you know, sometimes there would be anger, but sometimes it was just the like for me, and this this um, followed me. I remember having this kind of breakthrough um, in my gosh, I would have been in my forties um, at this point, and I was really still, you know, all those years later, I was struggling so much with anxiety, and I just thought, oh my god, like I can't live like this anymore. And so I searched out a therapist. I've seen a number of therapists over my lifetime, and I searched out this therapist and. Um, just a couple of sessions in, I finally was able to break through to the source of the anxiety, and it was fear of being a disappointment. And so I, I really deeply internalized that fear of being a disappointment to my dad, of course. My mom is is more of an unconditional lover, <laughs> um, so I had a nice balance there. Um, but I didn't want to disappoint either one of them. And then, of course, that carried into many other areas of my life. It carried into my relationships with men. Uh, it carried into my uh, professional uh, choices and relationships and performance, et cetera. So, yeah, that, uh, you know, like as if if I disappoint you, the world is going to come crashing down is what it feels like. It's what that conditioned voice says. It's It's made up. Right. But I, I believed it very much. And for you, what was the connection between perfectionism and everything that went with it and your relationship with food? When I was around 10-ish, um, we moved to a bigger house uh, from the little, little rambler um, that I grew up in. And I remember um, even the first time before we'd even bought the house, um, you know, we went as a family and I remember standing in the living room and there was a presence there um, and I felt it. And, you know, I wasn't, I was not, I was a, you know, speak when spoken to and behave yourself kind of kid as you might be picking up. So I certainly wouldn't have said anything about that. Um, but I just remember feeling something. Um, so anyway, we purchased that house. My parents purchased that house. We moved to the bigger house in a little bit different neighborhood, but I could still walk to and from school a little further and a little bit of a difference for me. So there we are in this new house. Um, and there is something recording about it. Progress. Um, recording in progress. Um, that is recording in progress. Kind of unsettling to me. And my mom goes back to work. 
So she had worked and then took some years off while my brother and I were growing up. And then she went back to work um, and, and then went back to work in the school system. And so I remember at that time, um, they just said, you know, do, do you think you can walk home by yourself and just be home, you know, from school for a couple of hours? I can't remember, two, three hours maybe until we get home. Now, you know, they're they're asking this of a kid who is not ever going to say, no, I can't do that or no, I'm scared, or I'm not sure, or I mean, that's not in my repertoire. <laughs> What's in my repertoire is, yes, of course I can. Yes, yes, I can. Yes, I can do that. So, you know, I kind of became latchkey and I came home and I was scared. And uh, my response to that was not to tell anybody I was scared or to ask for a chat about what might be the options for what I might do after school that would you know, all the things one might do if one cares about oneself, if one's kind of learned to have compassion for oneself, right? But I hadn't learned that yet. And so I did what I do, which is that I soldiered through and I um, started to eat. So I turned on the TV and I sat in front of the TV and I would eat a little bit out of a lot of things so that nobody would know that I was eating. And I would eat for a number of hours, probably the vast majority of the time that I was by myself. Um, I was I was doing a long, slow binge um, until I felt like I might explode. And we were on the precipice of people coming home. And that feeling of you might explode, you know, that's painful. And I guess yeah. you could say that you were turning your the pain of being in this house with a presence and feeling scared, the emotional pain got converted into physical pain. You know, the loneliness and emptiness got symbolically filled. Um, I mean, kind of resourceful in a way, but but ultimately more an enemy than a friend. Right. Yes. I mean, that's the interesting thing about binging, right? Is that Sometimes the voice tells us that conditioned voice, all those conditioned voices we all have, you know, says, well, you deserve it. You know, you, you've had a hard time or, you know, you need it or you just need some comfort. I mean, there's all kinds of things, right, that kind of go through our minds that make it sound like almost a comfort um, or a reward. But in my case, um, it was absolutely, uh, it was that, it was, it, it, it was that voice that said that. Um, it was that anesthesia effect that putting a lot of um, sugary, um, starchy, processed stuff in your body does to your brain. And yes, it also was a punishment. Binging was definitely a sort of a punishing behavior. Well, it was, you know, look, it, it sedated you. Yes. Right. It's sedated you. So, I mean, it's, it is always a frenemy. It's always a friend in that it does something for you. It helps you cope. It helps you go into that void, that numb zone where you're not thinking or feeling. You're just in the in the binge zone. Mm -hmm, it does exactly. so many things, but of course, it also hurts you, your spirit and your sense of self, and all of that. By the way, what are your thoughts on perfectionism and people pleasing, and how they go together? Oh my goodness! Well, <laughs> as a oh god. As a perfectionist, I can say that I developed a way of, and I'm an empath as well, and um, I developed a way of knowing the right thing to say 
in the right tone at the right time to the right person so that everybody would feel okay. And you know, my one of my old partners said something about me. And at the time I said, oh, what a, what a wonderful compliment. And he said, everybody feels better after they talk to Kirsten. Uh-huh. Well, you know what? That that's a little bit of a problem, actually. And and how was Kirsten talking to Kirsten? Well, Kirsten was saying, you need to you, you need to soldier through. You need to check all the boxes. You need to do everything that's expected of you. You need to show up for this person. You need to know the right thing to say. You need to do all that stuff or else. It always felt like there was an or else. Or else what? I'm going to be a disappointment. Nobody's going to like me. Nobody's going to accept me. Don't those sound like something a child might say? That's where Absolutely. that lives, right? That's where yeah. that lives in there. And we interpret what happens as truth. So if we feel like, oh, dad's mad at me because I failed to be perfect. What's wrong with me? I've let down my father. What's wrong with me? And then that plants the seed of there's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. And then you could turn into a world-class people pleaser to make sure that you're good enough for everybody else, even though you never feel good enough. And then you take care of everybody else. I don't know if you can relate to this, but a lot of times I, I, I talk to people who take care of the world and then food takes care of them. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's like the little, it's like your little go-to, like your little go-to um, soothe, like it's kind of how you self-soothe, except if you're binging, um, in, in the you know in my case, it was short-term gratification, long-term pain. Um, in all cases. Yeah, okay. I just want to, <laughs> I just want to own my it's, own stuff, but yes, yeah. that's my experience. Yes, it's too. it. Of course, it's a way of coping that ultimately hurts you and hurts your self-esteem and hurts your body and hurts your it's, yes. you know all the bad things. All the bad things. Yep. Which kind of leads me to another question, which is you know um, the perfectionism's impact on our relationship with 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 our body image mm -hmm. with our, like our when we talk about ourselves what are we talking about well that's boy that was a biggie for, i mean a really biggie for me um so there were definitely messages growing up and i again i grew up in the 70s and Farrah Fawcett was my icon right like that was who i really Yes, the hair. I I sat in the in the kitchen. My mom would put it put it in the curling iron. I would hold it. We'd try to. I have like kind of fine hair, so I could never get that feather like Farrah had. But um, you know, we would try to feather my hair like Farrah. And I watched Charlie's Angels, and I had the Charlie's Angels dolls. And and listen, there's nothing wrong with Farrah. Um, I love Farrah. Um, and you know, it was a certain look. Um, that was kind of uh, in the zeitgeist um, during that time. We all know that it always is. It, people are always telling us how we're supposed to look, right? Well, they were telling us that back then, and it was a skinny, <laughs> it was a skinny kind of archetype. <laughs> and so, not only did I have that coming in, you know, like we always do in terms of media, but I again had some relatively strong opinions being expressed by my dad about about women, you know, needing to be attractive. That attractive women were were valuable. Uh, smart women were also valuable. He very he very much valued intelligence. So I got that message too. 
but that attractive women were valuable and that one of the key pieces to being attractive was to not be fat. Um, yeah. So, you know, as somebody who is trying to check all the boxes and meet all the standards, what is instilled in me is kind of, I mean, it wasn't a problem for me for a while. Like it didn't become a problem um, until a little bit later in life. Um, but when it did, that fear of being fat, like, oh my God, if I'm not thin, then I'm not this, I'm not that, I don't meet this standard. And all of a sudden I cease to have value. Um, so that's very, for me, they were very closely tied. Yeah. Sounds like you are not lovable unless you are at some certain weight that your father and society deemed attractive. Correct. Um, and, you know, I fluctuated um, for a long time, for many years as someone with an eating disorder. And, um, you know, when I was married, I fluctuated up. Like my binging got got pretty uh, pretty regular, and I was not at that point uh, purging yet. And um, my husband basically, I mean, the words that he used were something along the lines of "You're fat, you're unattractive, and you're not the woman I married." Oof. Yeah. Ouch. So the the fear that the love will t be taken away if you are not thin was realized. It was actually fully realized in my marriage. And did you marry someone who was similar to your dad, unbeknownst well, and, to yourself? You know, actually, no. Uh, interestingly, he was really not, um, not much like my dad, other than that sort of thing that men do to women in terms of um, determining how you should look and then attaching their own self-esteem to how you look. So there was there that was going on for for sure. So so perhaps maybe there's a little bit um, of that in there. But you know what I did is I married a binger. Oh. Two bingers got married. <laughs> did you know this at the time? No, I met him on the on a downswing. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning he was kind of dieting and stuff at the time. And so I did not realize that. No, not until later. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So when we have this standard of you're either perfect or you're or you're rejectable. Yes. Yes, exactly. What do we do with that? Not just people who struggle with binge eating, but especially people who struggle with binge mm -hmm. eating and, and with food or with bul bulimia, binge eating, whatever. And binge mm -hmm. eating is, and this is something that still so many people don't know, it is the most prevalent eating disorder that nobody knows they have. Like they think they have no willpower. They think they're a food addict. They think, they think, they think, and they don't know that it's a diagnosable, treatable condition. Yes. Yes. So I, um, I, the, as I started to binge around 10, and then in my teens, I developed a, a pretty uh, raging uh, addiction to alcohol uh, and drugs and, uh, and, and men and sex. And the food went to about number four for a while. So during that period of time, there was a number of years where I was heavy into to drinking and, and drugs and men. Um, and so there was binging going on, but it was not, it was sort of, uh, yeah. 
binging on men. (laughs) Well, yeah, there, yeah, there was all that going on. And so there was also food binging going on, but it just didn't rise to the level that the other three did. So it just, it didn't get a lot of attention, I guess. And then I went to treatment. Um, cause I, yeah, it was a pretty, I, I spiraled, um, in my teens. And so I went to treatment and, um, I sat across from, from a guy, they, I guess we must have had assigned seats and there were, uh, certain nights we'd have German chocolate cake and I liked it. <laughs> yep. Liked cake. Um, and he would always give me his cake and there I am, you know, with like multiple cakes stacked on my tray and, you know, they're feeding us stuff like pancakes in the morning and stuff that's like, oh, like a bomb, you know, to our systems. And um, there it came creeping back because the alcohol and the drugs were now, you know, I was abstaining, um, not from the men. Um, that that still stayed very prevalent. Um, but there the, there the food started to come back. And when I got out, you know, I'd gone in pretty emaciated because uh, I was drinking a lot and, and yeah, I was just drinking a lot and using drugs and running around and stuff. And so when I came out, I mean, sure, my teeny little shorts were maybe just a little bit snug, you know, back in the day when there's no lycra and anything um, around my waist. Um, and I don't even know, I guess maybe I noticed it. I don't know that I put any a lot of thought about it. And then there I go back to this guy that I had been with prior that was super dangerous for me to be around fully into drugs still and criminal activity, all this stuff. Um, and so I, Ooh. yeah, I have sex with them because that's what I do right back then. That's, this is how it is. Y'all I'm just going to tell you the real stuff. And he, with his thumb and his first finger, he just pinched a little bit of flesh on my side, like at my waistline, like a tiny bit. And he said, Oh my God, did you gain weight? <gasps> and it was like, he was like shocked. Like, how how could you? I didn't even think, what? Well, how is this possible? So <laughs> everybody, <laughs> do, you, do you hear how like these belief systems that I had and that I internalized and then you know, we have the media and all those messages. And then we have men, you know, in various forms, just saying, "Uh uh-huh. Yep. Yep. You are only valuable if you look this way and you perform this way and you basically check all the boxes. Yeah. And here's a guy who is doing criminal activity, but your (laughs) crime was gaining weight at rehab. Yes. And he also... I mean, not that this matters, but he wasn't like a thin person. I'm just going to say that too, nor was my husband. And so, you know, these people who are judging me, you know, now I know because I now know why I judged other people, right? I judged other people because I was judging myself. And you were judging yourself because you were judged. Yes. And I believed it. Right. And they, but they, but that's the vicious cycle because that kind of hatey, judgy stuff that comes out of someone is only in there because they're saying those types of things to themselves. If they weren't doing that, they wouldn't be able to say that to me or to anybody. So it really didn't have anything to do with me 
but boy, it was like a, it was a, it was a square peg in a square hole. And that actually brings me to the, the role of the inner critic, mm-hmm. right? It, earlier you were talking about yourself, like you were talking to yourself, like you need to do this and you have to be that. And you like mm-hmm. talking to yourself in that second person voice, which I often equate when it is rude like that or task mastery <laughs> as, well, right. there's your inner critic. Um, so what about like how you then internalize this critical voice that you got first from your father, then from these various men. Mm-hmm. Now you're criticizing yourself the way you were criticized. Mm-hmm. What is the what is the role of inner critic in perfectionism? And how, and and well, I'll, I'll save my second part of my question for after you answer that question. Okay. Well, I guess I would say the inner critic's role in my perfectionism was. It, it was the facilitator. It was the project manager. I mean, really, because the inner critic, that conditioned voice has to be there in order to keep up this belief system and to keep driving you, like to driving you like a taskmaster. Because if it, when it starts, because it's, I don't really have that anymore. The spoiler alert. Uh, yeah, I've done some Yay. more. Right? Yeah. Because when when that is silenced, you you get to actually think, have a conversation with yourself. Uh, you know, think about well, what does my intuition say? What does my gut say? What does my brain say? What does my heart say? What feels like the right thing? What feels like the right thing for me? For me, nothing was really for me, and it's kind of fascinating because. For someone who spent as much time as I spent, basically trying to be a better person is really because I got into recovery early. And so part of like a 12-step recovery process, there is messaging in there about being a better person and having to always try to be a better person because you're inherently flawed. That is a piece of kind of the 12-step philosophy. And so... Yeah, the inner critic was absolutely the project manager of my uh, of my perfectionism, and it was so talented, so talented, so talented. You don't even really realize you're being facilitated. Yes, it seems like reality, but oh, it's learned, yeah. right? Yes. It's something that we learn, and and then we take it as truth. Yes. Yeah. And it's not true. Which is what, that was the key, uh, was realizing that all of the messages that I had been getting from that inner critic, from that perfectionistic voice about all the things I had to do or else, when I realized it was all lies and that I didn't have to believe it, then I could choose my own lie. I mean, if, ugh, I, I was shocked and I was in shock and awe. Okay, so Kirsten, here you are. Mm-hmm. You grow up in this family. You have this very, very perfectionistic, uh, uh, patriarchal father. You internalize these ideas. You go through everything you go through, different mm-hmm. ways of of coping, whether it's the slow binge, as you described it, or men, or drinking, or what have you. These are all mm-hmm. coping strategies. And finally, you, you, you. You deal with recovery and you tackle perfectionism. So how did you break the link 
between these behaviors, let's say binge eating or bulimia, whatever, and, and perfectionism? Or how did you break the perfectionism to binge eating? Well, so I did have um, an interesting piece to my path that I want to mention because it really is, it was a critical step um, for me to make it to where I am today, um, which is I'm liberated. Uh, I'm liberated today. Uh, yeah, I got a big smile from Dr. Nina. Um, so in, when I would, let's see, 2005, I got into food recovery. And so I remember at the time I had gone to a new psychiatrist because I, I had bulimia at that point, everyone. So um, I then moved in. So I binged and then I moved in because, of course, I had the perfectionism and the um, issues with my body image and trying to be a certain size and and the comments from mostly men kept on coming. So anytime that my weight was not whatever they thought it should be, I, I would get the feedback about it from strangers. Even strange strange men would say stuff to me. It's fascinating that they felt like, hmm, I'm going to go ahead and tell her what I think is wrong with her. So, um, you know, I was suffering. I was suffering and dieting and doing all the things we do um, to try to figure out how to wrangle that and have the body I wanted and all that stuff. And I got into food recovery. And so I did a 12-step food program for mm, over 16 years, and it was a weighing and measuring food program. It was highly, highly structured. Um, it was three weighted measured meals a day with nothing in between, and the foods that we chose came off of a food list, um, and they had to be weighed in specific amounts, and the food was reported um, to a sponsor each day, and if something happened with your food... Um, or there was a variation or you made a mistake or you made a willful choice that didn't align, um, then you would report that to your sponsor. And typically, you know, you restart your day count and, you know, there were certain things that you couldn't, couldn't do if you didn't have 90 days, et cetera. So that kind of gives you an idea. So that <laughs> became your perfectionism. So you, you know, having to be perfect with food. Well, right? okay. Yes. And. So interestingly, that psychiatrist who I, because I had read, oh, Prozac, Prozac is helping people with bulimia. So I go to the psychiatrist and I say, yeah, I heard the SSRIs are helping people with bulimia. And so he prescribes it and I think, okay, well, this is going to, this is going to do it. Right. Um, it didn't, uh, by the way, but, but anyway, I came back um, to, to a session with him and I said, oh, I found this program and I started it and I described it and he goes, Oh, I see. He goes, so you've moved your um, obsessive, compuls obsessive compulsive disorder over to this. He wasn't really being, he wasn't being mean or critical. He was just sort of making an observation quite similar to what, to the observation that, that you just made, that for a militant perfectionist, the program I just described, it, it was a little bit like a duck to water. In a way. It was familiar. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. something with those kinds of rules and limitations and, and such clear guidelines, it did it was something that I could roll with because I knew how to do that. It also arrested the bulimia. I I have not um purged my food since like April of two thousand five. Um, and so, and it also freed me in a way, now it was like a step, right? To where I am now a long one. I stayed in it a long time and I didn't actually, 
I didn't think I'd ever maybe be able to not do it and then and still be okay with food. I thought, okay, I found it. I can do this. I did it in a lot of different countries. I did I did it in at weddings. I did it. You name it. I did it, right? Um, and I thought, well, this is just how I'm going to live. I'm just going to weigh and measure my food. And it actually taught me a lot about food, a lot about what food is right for my body and what food is not right for my body. So it 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 also had some amazing um, positives. Um, and yes, it synced right up with my perfectionism and there was some suffering, uh, as you might imagine, associated with that. And then what got you from all those years in, mm -hmm. in that program to liberation, which it, it, you know, I define liberation as you wake up and think about your day, not your diet. Yes. Right? So tell us how you went from that program, which just reinforced the perfectionism and the rigidity to where you are now. Well, um, so we, that kind of brings us back to the question you asked me at the very beginning, like what brought me to this work? So it was, it was all tied up in um, the end of a relationship. Okay. So uh, I, I did mention, I wanted to mention the men because that has been, um, I didn't realize. Okay. Let me be a little bit more clear here. When I got to the food, in the recovery program. I remember thinking, okay, I finally got, I've finally gotten to ground zero of these kind of these anesthesia behaviors of mine that sometimes go into uh, an addiction or a dependency, but I hadn't, it, that's not where it was. It was really in my, it was in my relationships with men, but of course, because as we've been weaving this story for you, What's underneath that, right, is this deep desire to be accepted. And so- by the original my, man. Sorry to interrupt, yes. but by the original by man, the original right? Man. Who's the original yes. man? By the original man, yes. And so um, so my marriage, and I was with the, the guy I married for 17 years, and that when that ended, um, I got with the next guy. And it was less than a month, less than a month, everyone, 17 years. 26 days, new partner for 14 years. Now, this partner that I had, I poured it all into, poured all my efforts into being the woman that couldn't be left, couldn't be cheated on, you know, wouldn't be betrayed. Like, it, look, just watch me. Look, all, look at what I can do. Look how well I can do at work. Look at all the cosmetic procedures I can have. Look how look how I can stay on my food plan and how thin I can be and look look how pleasing I am and look how I'll do things with you that I don't really want to do, uh, but you want them, so I'll do them anyway. But again, I don't know. I don't know that that's what I'm doing because this is how I've lived. What I know is that I really, really love this guy and I'm just trying, 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 trying. And I'm thinking, okay, like this is my God, this is my person, and I built this life. And Nina, it looked great. Beautiful condo, great job, good salary, big title, beautiful trips every year, you know, great wardrobe, 
frozen face, big lips, you know, all the stuff. I had all the stuff, the good bag, you know. All Did you stuff. live in LA? Because boy, you no. described like. <laughs> well, exactly. But that was my, that again, that's my archetype. So I'm, I'm trying to be the me Seattle version of a real housewife here, right? Trying to do all the stuff. And guess what? I got betrayed. I got cheated on. And I got left. And I plummeted to just about the darkest, lowest, most painful place I've ever been in. And I'm a cancer survivor, everyone. I haven't mentioned I had anal cancer. Yes, anal cancer. Oh my God. You and Sarah. Yes, with pelvic radiation. So that's a separate thing. So when I say, yeah, it was really bad. Lost my fertility, the whole thing. So when I say that I plummeted to the darkest, lowest, most painful place I have ever experienced, I'm kind of saying something. I'm not somebody who is uh, unfamiliar with challenge and suffering and pain and loss. And I mean, I looked inside of myself and I didn't see anything. I saw no semblance of anything I recognized. I just saw an empty kind of darkness. And I, I was scared and it felt like I needed to kind of save my own life. And I sat at this, my little kitchen table in my beautiful condo, you know, by myself as the world is shutting down, the pandemic is around, is coming, is coming and it's, everything is shutting down. And I thought, I'm not exactly sure why I'm here in this place, but I, I know it's because of me. Yeah, he did X, Y, Z, and ABC, but I'm here for because of me, and I, I, I don't know what I'm going to find, but I need to figure this out. And I walked, I, I walked over to a cabinet where I had put a book that a therapist handed, not handed, therapist recommended during this breakup. So this breakup with this with this guy that I was just in a total state of trauma and devastation, I would catch her looking at me like in the eye, like really looking at me. And, and it would be all, it would be a little disquieting. Like I would catch her looking at me, like she really was seeing me. And she just very quietly recommended this book um, called um, regardless of what you were taught to believe there is nothing wrong with you. And uh-huh. You had me at the title. Uh-huh. So I bought it, right? And then I moved out of that shared condo we had together and unpacked and put the book in the cupboard and, you know, we started doing meetups and started trying to build a life and then, and then, okay, so there we are. I'm in that sort of darkness. I'm devastated. I walk over and I think, huh, I wonder about that book. And I took the book out. And it is a, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a small but mighty book. I'm going to say, um, it's not dense in words, but it is dense in uh, meaning. And I read it cover to cover. I just sat on my couch in the sun, and I read it cover to cover. And I had to stop and breathe. And I would sometimes say to out loud to nobody, "It's all lies. It's all lies." None of this is true. I don't have to do any of this stuff. I'm valuable as I am. 
And the person who gets to decide that is me. And acceptance from a man is not going to do anything for me because I don't accept myself. I don't accept myself. I had rejected myself my whole life and search, search, search for other people to accept me to fill this painful kind of well of suffering that came from my own lack of acceptance. So incredibly powerful to realize that it's sort of like the the emotional matrix, the matrix to realize that you're living in um, a quote unquote reality that's just a construct. It's what you came to believe because of the messages that you got and the messages that you interpreted and all, all of that. And then to realize actually it's just a construct and you can deconstruct it and construct a new way, which is obviously what you have done. Yes. And now you help other people. Yes. And so with the food, so again, as I was surprised about not belonging at my job, I did not, when I was then, I went on the path. I'm like, well, I'm going to do this work. I'm going to do this work. I'm going to, I'm going to like myself. I'm going to love myself. I'm going to feel okay about myself no matter what. <clears throat> I did not think, well, I'm, and, and I'm going to stop, stop doing my food program, my 12 steps. I did not think that. But this interesting thing happened when the inner critic, when I began to silence the inner critic and deconstruct this belief system that somehow it was transactional, that my value and my ability to be accepted was somehow transactional, that if I did this, then I was deserving, or if I did that, then, you know, I would uh, get this acceptance that I, when I deconstructed that and addressed my own acceptance and my own loneliness, because when you don't accept yourself, when you reject yourself, when you harm yourself with food and all the other behaviors that I harmed myself with, you're not with yourself. You're not your own friend. You're not showing yourself love and compassion and it's lonely. And so there I was kind of trying to fill my loneliness and trying to fill my lack of acceptance really with love from men. And it was never going to fill it because it can only be filled by me. So when I filled it, somehow I just, the food program began to feel punishing because I didn't need it anymore. Yay. (laughs) For all of it. Yes. Yes. You, it's so powerful. You, you became the, the arbiter of your own sense of self. And and that in, and and your your own life and that includes what do you want to what do you want to eat rather than what should you eat? Yes, yeah. It, what do I want to eat? What does my body feel like? You know, I just kind of say, well, am I actually hungry? And I wait and I kind of wait and I think, oh, okay, yeah, oh, yep, I feel it, yep, hungry. What do I feel like eating? And also, what have I already eaten? And because I am interested in my own nutrition. And giving my body what it needs and and striking some balance, hopefully. And so I just have a little conversation and then I eat a little something. <laughs> and it's so simple, right? I mean, you have to go through so much to get to that place of liberation. But once you're liberated, 
it's it's just so it's just so easy and it it seems like it's impossible when you're on the other side of it but it is possible i you- i would never y'all never i would never i would have heard somebody talking like me and thought mm-hmm, great that's great for you but it's never going to work for me because i didn't understand where the source was source was had nothing to do with food Exactly. And uh, I know we only have like a couple minutes left, but I'd, I'd love for you to just briefly speak to anyone who is listening to this thinking, well, that's, you know, that's your journey, but mm-hmm. it could never happen to mm-hmm. me. What do you want to say to them? And then tell us how people can reach you. Okay. What I want to say is instead of going straight at your food, there's nothing wrong with you and there's nothing wrong with the way you look. There's nothing wrong with you. And there's nothing wrong with the way you look. If you can begin to cultivate those beliefs, and it's going to take some practice because your conditioning is probably telling you something different. But if you can begin there and then move on to developing a friendly, supportive relationship with your body, it will set you up to figure out what food is for you. That that is like a really strong recommendation. Just leave the food alone for a minute and and work on the other stuff. Um, and you can find me at giraffetangooctopus.com. Wait, you you just have to explain giraffe t- <laughs> tango op- octopus. Well, I am a I am a tall, lanky person, so I I look I kind of move about the world like a friendly giraffe, and that's sort of how people interact with me. I find, and inside I'm more of a, a solitary octopus, and I merge those things together because I am here to just be fully myself and accept myself for what I am and not be worried about it. Oh, and what a journey you've had and what an example you are. So Kirsten, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your journey and your being so vulnerable and open and raw and real and offering so much inspiration and hope for people who maybe were you used to be. So it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And that is our show for today. I cannot believe how fast that hour went. Uh, The Binge Cure is here every Thursday at noon Pacific, or you can listen later at all podcast channels. Stay perfectly imperfect and curious, not critical. I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. Each week, she offers valuable insights to stop emotional eating and give steps to lead a joyous life. Tune in next Thursday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.